passage this morning is from the book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 1 through 27. Um, it's small print up there. Don't worry if you can't see it well. Uh, feel free to open up your, your Bibles and follow along with me. Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 27. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel and do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who makes Pleiades and Orion who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detests the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor, and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be a wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without any ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. 
Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestals of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this is a lot for us to process, but I pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we could perceive the message you have for us today. Lord, would your scripture cut us to the heart? Lord, would you turn us to Jesus this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Jesus, his most powerful sermon is found in Matthew chapter 5. That's where you find the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, you find all sorts of teaching that changed the world. That's where you hear Jesus say things like, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. He says, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Those thoughts are so deeply ingrained in our society today, I bet if you ask most people, they wouldn't even know they come from the Bible. That's pretty much as as effective as you can be as a preacher. The most effective sermon ever. And I just wonder, have you ever imagined what it would be like to have heard that sermon? To have been there At that moment, to see this young rabbi, early 30s, standing on a dusty hillside, getting ready to teach the crowd. Maybe you'd heard some of the stories that he's a great miracle worker, that he's a powerful prophet, that he's healed people. Maybe you've heard some of the rumors. Some people think this guy's the Messiah. They think he's the anointed one who's coming to save all of God's people. Think about it. Think about being there in that moment. Just imagine it as he sits there in the sun. How is he going to call everyone to attention? How does the Son of God begin his most important sermon. Well, not with a joke, not with a clever story, but if you remember, it says he sits and he begins to teach, he opens his mouth and he simply says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those words are more than the introduction to a sermon, right? They are a manifesto declaring what it means to follow God. He is telling us right at the outset of that sermon that anyone who would come to God must come the same way. That we all have to come empty-handed, not clinging on to a list of all the good things we've done, 
not trying to make a case for our own goodness, our own worthiness, but we come in a spirit of poverty. We come in a spirit of utter dependence upon God. Unfortunately, that is something we as God's people easily tend to forget. We are a people who have a long history of believing our own press, of letting religious rituals give us a false comfort, of allowing ourselves to become self-righteous and judgmental towards the world when we should be humble and repentant. And as we open up Amos chapter 5 this morning, we are coming into a very familiar scene. That's what I'm trying to say. This is a picture, what we just read, of a merciful God who is once again calling out to his people who have gotten lost. It is the great I am. And he's pleading with Israel that they would see through their religious lives and their financial prosperity and instead that they would come and see their true spiritual poverty. And so the lessons in this chapter, they all revolve around that message. The first thing we find here is is that Amos is telling us that prosperity is not the same thing as God's blessing. Secondly, we find that religion is not the same thing as true righteousness. And finally, we see that true faith calls us to poverty. And so those are the three things we can find in this text. And we should just jump right into the first one. Because right off the bat, Amos is trying to tell us that prosperity is not the same thing as God's blessing. So each week as we've looked at this book... We've tried to give you a little bit of context. If you remember, the book of Amos is a prophecy from around the year 760 B.C. Uh, It's a time when God's chosen nation, the nation of Israel, the nation that David was once the king of, has now split in two. And the northern half of that nation is called Israel. The southern half of that nation is called Judah. And God has called this man, Amos, who is a native of the south, to go up to the north, to Israel, and to preach a message of condemnation. He came to tell them that because of all their disobedience, God was coming to punish them. That the land of Israel was going to be destroyed, that they were going to be conquered and taken away. But in the midst of that message, there is also an invitation for the people to turn back to God. There's a message that says, even though you are going to lose your country, you don't have to lose your soul. Now that was a hard message for the people to hear. And what made it so hard to hear is because things were going really well. Things in Israel were were doing just fine. In fact, if you heard it when we read verse 11, it says they live in stone mansions and that they have their own vineyards. And not only that, not only are are they doing pretty well financially, they're also religious people. They're devout. They weren't atheists. 
They weren't pagans. They weren't thumbing their noses at God while they were amassing all this wealth. In verse 21, it talks about all the frequent religious festivals, all the assemblies they went to, all the different kinds of offerings they made, grain offerings, burnt offerings, fellowship offerings. These were very religious people. And so you can imagine when this guy from the south comes up and starts preaching about their condemnation, they they might be thinking, well, what's that, Amos? You say, God's mad with me? Because when I rode home from the temple in my stretched chariot and laid out by the pool and drank the vintage Merlot from my own vineyard, he didn't mention anything about it. Amos, he probably seemed like that crazy guy on the corner, preaching in the street. But it's important that we hear this because it actually, it's a message that is preached consistently all throughout Scripture. And one that we often get mixed up about. God tells us that spiritual prosperity, spiritual health, is not the same thing as worldly prosperity. It's not the same thing as as wealth. Never in the Bible does it tell us there is a one-to-one correlation between our obedience to God and our success or our disobedience to God and our suffering. The Bible's honest about that. Just because you happen to be doing well doesn't mean that God is pleased with you. The fact is, many ruthless people live prosperous lives. And I get that we can mix that up because that's not how we would do things, right? We want things to be fair. We want there to be justice. We want a world where bad people have bad things happen to them and good people have good things happen to them. Well, we have a God who does promise that one day there will be justice. But he also tells us that right now, the way things are in the current state of the world where sin is present, where the world is fallen, well, things just aren't the way they're supposed to be. And the Bible recognizes that. The prophet Jeremiah, he asks God this very thing. He says, you are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet, I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? People for generations have been asking these questions honestly, even in the pages of our Bible. And it is important that we know what the Bible says because uh, this, is the, this is where we get that extremely destructive uh, heresy that we know today as prosperity theology. This message that on the surface, it sounds pretty nice, right? It's the, it's the theology that says, if you're good, then God will bless you. And if you're bad, then God will punish you. Maybe it sounds nice, but the problem is, it's not true. <laughs> and the consequence of 
teaching a theology like that or believing a theology like that is that it tortures the weak and the needy. Because it says to somebody who is sick or somebody who is suffering or somebody who is poor, it says, this is your fault. You need to be better at following God. And then on the other hand, it falsely comforts those of us who are doing well. It falsely comforts the rich and the healthy because it says, you're doing great. God is clearly pleased with you. And that is exactly the trap that Israel had fallen into in this book. They were doing well. And so they assumed God was pleased. They had all these worldly blessings. And so they assumed that meant that they also had heavenly blessings coming. But the reality could not have been farther from the truth. Amos says, you are under God's wrath and your time has run out. So that's the first point. Prosperity is not the same thing as God's blessing. The second point is that religion is not the same thing as righteousness. See, it wasn't just the wealth that had the people of Israel convinced they had God's favor. Like I said a minute ago, they were also very religious people. They were constantly giving offerings. They were constantly holding these big religious festivals. If you wanted to put it in our terms, they were going to Sunday school, they were going to church, they were singing in the choir, they were in a small group, they were even coming to the cleanup days on Saturday. They were doing all of it. They were checking off all the boxes. And in the midst of this very religious society, in the midst of these very religious people, there was a gaping hole in their society. In the midst of all these worshiping people, they had built a system where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And that is God's main complaint as we read through this passage. It's the one that comes up over and over again, that they lived these lives of prosperity and religiosity in a world defined by oppression and injustice. And so verse 7, he says, There are those who turn justice into bitterness... And cast righteousness to the ground. Verse 11, it says, There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court. And detests the one who tells the truth. Verse 11, it says, You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a grain tax on them. Verse 12, he says, There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes. And deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So he's, in, in this community, there was a two-tiered society. Where the affluent, they're out there enjoying this life of ease. But they're doing it at the expense of the weakest people. They had all these religious observances. 
but they didn't have true faith. They weren't actually being obedient to God's heart. To quote a Christian song probably nobody knows, they had faith in the bank and money in their hearts. They had this false sense of security because they were doing all these things, these empty rituals. They had prayed the right prayers. But what they really worshipped was their wealth. Their lives, they looked really good on the surface, but their hearts were far from God. Now that's the problem that Amos is focusing on in chapter 5. But let's be honest, that is hardly an isolated event in history. Hundreds of years later, when Jesus came, when he's criticizing the religious leaders of his day, he says almost exactly the same thing, doesn't he? Do you remember Matthew chapter 23? He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Same story. And today, hundreds of years from that moment, is it any different? In every society across the globe, we see that wealth brings with it privilege, and it brings with it power. If you read the news this week, maybe you saw a blip across the, the headlines about these Pandora papers that got released. Did anybody see this? It was the work, they said, one of the biggest collaborations of journalists across different uh, outlets, and they revealed this massive global network of tax havens. Legal, some of them gray areas. But it was this network where the wealthiest people in the world had managed to find a way to avoid paying any taxes whatsoever. Or as one person put it, where the, the richest people found a way to escape responsibility to their communities where they found a way to make the middle class and the poor bear the entire tax burden for that society. Or think of another example. In our country, we have a justice system. But it is not a secret to anyone that if you are poor, your chance of a good outcome is much lower than if you go in wealthy with a huge team of lawyers to plead your case. So the question is, are we supposed to care about these things? Are these types of things, are they really our problem? Well, both Amos and Jesus called out people 
who claimed to belong to the Lord and yet ignored the injustices in their community. They they both spoke to a people who believed that their religious practice was more important to God than seeking a just and righteous society. But what does God say? Well, we just read it. He says, verse 21, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In our tradition, the evangelical Christian tradition, we tend to separate out our spiritual lives. Things like praying, things like having a quiet time or, or going to church or doing evangelism. And we put that stuff over here and we separate it from what we consider more worldly tasks like mercy and justice. But the message of Amos to Israel The message of Jesus to the religious leaders of his day, the message of Scripture to us, is that this is a false dichotomy. It's an artificial divide. You cannot split the two. They belong together. You cannot love God and ignore the needy. You cannot worship the righteous judge And deny justice to the oppressed. You cannot follow a savior who said he has no place to lay his head. And then spend your own life hoarding your own belongings. In other words, you can be a very religious person. And live a life that is far from God. You can be a very, quote, good Christian and still be a child of hell. So what do we do with that? Well, the third thing this passage points out to us is that true faith calls us to poverty. True faith calls us to poverty. There is a call at the very beginning of this text. It says, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not go to Beersheba. He says, seek me and live. Now, those other towns that he mentioned, those were the places that Israel had set up for their worship. Places where they had decided to worship God instead of Worshipping the way he asked in the city of Jerusalem in the south. It was a worship that looked good on the outside. It let them check off the boxes that they were doing the stuff they were supposed to do, but it did not honor God. 
They were worshiping in a way that wasn't really obedience. It was, it was more of a defense tactic, honestly. It gave them something that they could cling to. It gave the people of Israel something that, that they could hold on to, and it allowed them to look at God and say, look at all the things I'm doing. Just like you said, I'm, I'm sacrificing. I'm, I'm going to the festivals. I deserve your favor. God, look at how good I am. But anyone who has ever truly encountered the living God knows that is the definition of false worship. No one in Scripture ever stands before the living God and says, look at how good I am. Right? The people standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, after they heard God giving the Ten Commandments, what did they say? They said to Moses, do not let God speak to us anymore or we will die. Isaiah, standing in the temple, seeing the vision of God, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. In Jesus' story, the tax collector, when he comes in to worship, he cries out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. A real encounter with God doesn't allow us to say, look at how good I am. A real encounter with God is, is an encounter with our own sin. You cannot come face to face with righteousness, with real justice, with pure holiness, with true unconditional love and faithfulness. You can't be in front of those things without recognizing that whatever you thought was good inside of you, it's just a joke. No one stands before God and says, look how good I am. They stand before him and they say, save me. I'm lost. There are so many horrible things in my heart. And you know what? Now I see that even the things I thought were good are full of sin. That's true worship. And to anyone who has ever felt that, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And that's the glory of our God. When our God comes to us, he doesn't say, tell me about all the things that you've done. He says, what does he say? He says, seek me and live. Don't show me all your righteous effort. Don't show me all of your, your performances. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That means that if, if this morning, if you see Jesus in his Humility, if you see him in his righteousness, if you see his perfect record of obedience to God and you immediately want to say, that's what I need, come save me. Well, then the kingdom is already yours. 
It means his spirit is already alive in your hearts if that's what you want. He's already shown you that you're a sinner. He's already shown you that that he's your only hope. That your only chance is if somebody else would take the penalty for your sins. And someone has. If you know that you're poor in spirit, the gospel tells us that Jesus will make you rich with his spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Religion tells us that we need to perform for God's approval. We need to make ourselves fit for him. But the gospel says the only fitness he requires is that we see our need of him. Prosperity is not the same thing as blessing. Religion is not the same thing as righteousness. But faith, true faith, it calls us to see our own poverty and to cling to his riches. And so the last thing I'll say is this. If that is our faith, If that is the first and and central message of the kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, what kind of lives should we live as a result? As we walk out these doors, as we look around the world, we have to recognize that injustice still abounds in our world today. Poverty is still everywhere in our world today. Inequality is still everywhere in our world today. So what does it mean for us to take this faith into the world? Or think of it this way. If Amos showed up in your living room this week, if he showed up in our sanctuary this morning, if he showed up at the Mooresville Town Hall, What might he say? Have we mistaken our comfort for God's blessing? Whose voices are crying out that we ignore? What systems are broken that we've stopped caring about whether or not they get fixed? How is God practically calling us to respond? Here's what we know. He says, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come before you again this morning the only way we can come. We come before you empty-handed. We come before you recognizing that that the weight of the sin of our own lives is overwhelming. And the weight of the fallen state of this world is more than we can bear. Lord, we come before you humbly asking for your direction, Lord. 
we only have questions. We don't have answers. Would you show us what it means to obey you with this word? Lord, would you show us how to trust you and how to receive your riches and how to lay down our righteousness at your feet? Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.